Hello everyone, my name is Reese Garlinski and this is Young History, episode 142 on Madagascar. The capitalist country is Antananarivo, and the name Madagascar doesn't really have a concrete story. The early belief was that Marco Polo, the Italian explorer, traveled to Mogadishu in Somalia and thought that Madagascar was part of Somalia that was just further south, so he named it Mogadishu, which may have been corrupted to Madagascar. The etymology of the name Madagascar is believed to have originated from the Arabic word Mudajaj, which means an island. Now, the Malagasy people in Madagascar refer to their island as Madagascara. In their language, which means the island of the Malagasy, this could have been adapted to eventually be Madagascar. However, an issue with the Malagasy origin theory is that there is not a letter C in the Malagasy language, so many stories have been offered to solve the mystery of this nation's name, but there really isn't one that's concrete. It's just that currently we believe that something to do with Mogadishu being so close in relativity to Madagascar might be the reason we have the name today. To get into some facts, the baobab trees and the lemurs that are here are endemic to Madagascar, meaning they are native to nowhere else in the world. Madagascar is also home to a variety of chameleon species. The island boasts half of the world's total chameleon population, and most of them are endemic to Madagascar. About 90% of the wildlife in Madagascar is found nowhere else on the planet. This high level of endemism is due to the island's isolation for millions of years. The Avenue of Baobabs is a famous natural landmark in Madagascar. These towering and ancient trees line the dirt roads between Morandava and Biloni Trishibaina, creating a stunning and otherworldly landscape that is the site of many depictions in art, movies, and literature. And the final thing is that Madagascar is colloquially referred to as the eighth continent by its people and those that study it, mainly for the fact that it has this location separate from the continent of Africa and its extremely high biodiversity rates. So that was just some things to get us started with Madagascar here. I don't want to dilly-dally too much more, but we are just going to get right into this history. And this is definitely an interesting one, especially from the way it starts. So I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of music and get right into it. So as always, thank you guys so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and this is Madagascar. You guys enjoy. Our origins begin between 2000 BC and 400 CE. The reason for such a large gap is because it seems that more recent evidence places the first humans to arrive on Madagascar around 2000 BC compared to the earlier evidence, which is very concrete, that shows life was here around 400 CE. The first to discover Madagascar was the Austronesian peoples of Indonesia, specifically from the island of Borneo. They hunted the megafauna that was here to extinction. There was apparently giant sloths and other massive mammals like that. Mainland African peoples moved into the island around 1000 CE. They were mostly Bantu, and their descendants brought pastoralism and set agricultural practices in motion on the island, which had for hundreds of years by this point just been a place that hunted and gathered and used very, very basic traps and things of that sort to keep animals in an area, but there was not any true pastoralism or agriculture yet. So with the presence of the new Bantu and the original Austronesian peoples, the bigger people and culture of the Malagasy is formed. They created the language of Malagasy, which was of the same structure as Ma'anyan, which was spoken on Borneo. The Malagasy split themselves up into at least a dozen different tribes on the island. These tribes claimed different regions of their island for their own, and they ran through chieftain societies that were individual to each of these around 12 societies. So this is not a greater united thing, but the basis for their language is, and their ethnicity and origins come together to form a similar people 
if you're looking at it that way, but when it comes to the way they operate and their practices, there was practically 12 states of Madagascar. So they were all different, different cultures, all that. Also around this time, people from the Arabian Peninsula likely moved into the island. It is believed that the intermingling of the Arab people in Malagasy culture may have produced the Antamoro people. Historical reports of this are little to none, and there is not an agreement amongst historians on if this is true or not. And for ages, this island is uncontacted beyond this. The people that live here live in seclusion. There is very little trade at all with the mainland Africa outside of for pure necessities. And then the East African nations would trade here for pelts and other things they could get from Madagascar. But overall, there's not a lot of interaction. That changes around the 1500 when the Portuguese first scoped it out and discovered it for the Europeans. In 1500, Diogo Diaz is believed to have been the first European to sight Madagascar during his exploration of the Indian Ocean. Tristan de Cunha, another Portuguese explorer, led an expedition that included Madagascar in its route. The Portuguese were primarily interested in establishing trade routes to facilitate the spice trade with Asia. Madagascar's geographic position made it a potential stopover place for ships traveling between Portugal and the East Indies. And during this time, as there was development in trade throughout the 15 and 1600s, there is also Thomas II. Thomas II was an English privateer and pirate who played a notable role in the golden age of piracy. Madagascar was strategically placed between the Indian Ocean and Africa, which was also on trade routes with Europe. So it made a huge place for pirate havens to occur, and it ended up becoming a huge base for Thomas II and his pirates during the golden age of piracy. Ships from Europe of many different flags, be them Spanish, Portuguese, or British, were intercepted near Madagascar and were either robbed, hijacked, dismantled for parts, a bunch of different things like that because of pirates like Thomas II and because of Madagascar's location as a stopping point on the way to the Far East. Now, we have to talk about the Marina people next. They were a central Malagasy tribe that started to rise to political and militaristic power in the 1700s. Once they took power, they named themselves the monarchs of the island. King Andrianan Poini Marina led the Marina people to conquer a large region of central Madagascar and then forced his dynastic rule over the tribes and his sphere of influence. He was succeeded by his son, Randama II, upon his death. Randama ruled from 1810 to 1828. In this time, he expanded Marina's control over the entire northern and eastern halves of the nation. He opened up trade with Western Europe. Randama made an alliance with the British specifically to strengthen Marina rule against a possible French incursion. The British wanted this as a blockade to the French, and of course the Malagasy, Marina people, wanted this to maintain their own freedom. This caused the marina to accept European military technology and the British fighting style. British culture was also influential on the island. Christianity was spread, education and literary... Ah! Education system... Okay. Christianity was spread, education was expanded, and literacy rates were increased. The British also wanted to bring an end to the Atlantic slave trade, which was still present in Madagascar. Upon the death of Rondama, which came due to alcohol overdose, he was succeeded by his wife, Rana Valona I. Rana Valona ruled from 1828 to 1861. She believed in the power possessed by rulers. So, she ordered many under her domain into forced construction to work on new city schematics. She was a strong queen that challenged foreign influence in her land. She was a staunch traditionalist, so she denied and outlawed Christianity. She felt that the influence of Europeans would only bring violence to her nation, if only they had listened. And in the greater historical context, she was called a mad queen for her beliefs, which reflect a greater issue with history where strong female leaders are painted heavily in an unfavorable light when they upset men around them. And I believe the reason that she was called a mad queen was simply because she opposed Christianity and Europeans, so they just called her mad for this instead of, you know, 
the common ruler that would just bend the knee to European rule or would fall and eventually assimilate. She refused to do this, so they call her mad, they call her crazy, they try and tear her down in history, but in truth, she was just someone who was very proud of her Marina Malagasy heritage. Eventually, she died in 1861 and was succeeded by her son, Randama II. Randama II repealed his mother's aggressive isolationism policies, but this would be the downfall of his legacy. Randama II is most known for his contract with the French, known as the Lambert Charter. It granted French forces full access to all minerals, resources, and unoccupied land on Madagascar. Randama II only signed this because he thought it was some sort of trade or peace deal that was similar to the one his ancestors had signed with the British. However, this charter was fully in French, so he couldn't read a word of it and signed it nonetheless. This rolled into the prime minister, gaining power and sharing the government with the crown. Eventually, the successor to Randama II, Rainil Yaravani, married three queens to unite the power of Madagascar. He modernized the nation and tried to keep diplomatic ties strong internationally. But France wasn't interested in that. You see, France had scoped out Madagascar earlier in history, around the same time the Portuguese were stooping around. The French had interest in the land, but not enough to go and battle the British-supported forces that were there. But by this point, the Marina monarchy had refused to honor the terms of the charter, and because of this, the French used it as a legal region to go invade the nation. So in 1883, the Franco-Hova Wars began. They were called the Hova Wars because Hova is the most commonly spoken dialect of Malagasy. It is one of the national languages today alongside French. After initial battles, a treaty was agreed upon, and this established a French protectorate, but French troops ended up pulling out of Madagascar because of issues back in the homeland of France. The French bombarded Toamasina, which started the Second Hova War. The Malagasy resisted heavily and used guerrilla tactics nationwide to give many defeats to the French, but they were not overall able to resist the numbers and technological advantage that France held. The French forces under General Jacques Duchesne advanced and captured the capital city, Antonarivo. In September 1895, this event marked the effective end of the resistance. The war concluded with the Treaty of Paris in the same year, which officially established Madagascar as a French colony and ended the sovereignty of the Marina Kingdom. The queen at the time, Ranilova III, was exiled to Algeria. Right after French rule began, there was the Menelaba Rebellion. It saw the recently conquered Malagasy resist against the French colonial rule. This lasted from 1896 to around 1897, and in the time, the French were completely brutal to the people that resisted. Around 100,000 Malagasy that supported the resistance were killed by French forces. And because of this, French rule is more tightly established, but is still not accepted by the Malagasy nonetheless. French rule expanded educational systems and brought new technology, such as expansive national railroads. Domestic slavery was ended, and the French expanded the French language and culture across the island. The French also implemented a system called corvée. It was a forced labor system that was enacted on the native peoples instead of taxes. This was because many peoples were unemployed before the French arrived, so those that did not have a job weren't paying taxes and were forced to work at mines and do other backbreaking work in order to pay off this tax that the French believed they had to pay. So this goes further into the distaste that the Malagasy have for the French, and this manifests in 1904 when the Malagasy rose again in a short rebellion that once again didn't result in anything, but showed how brutal the French were in suppressing it, because this time they brutalized the rebels, tortured some, and killed hundreds. The next major event is World War I, where young Malagasy men were forced into the ranks of the French forces and had to fight in a continent they had never stepped foot on. This gives them some battle experience and also makes the desire for independence grow. During World War II, Vichy France, that allied with the Nazis after France fell, took power in Madagascar. Thousands of Malagasy fought in the northern parts of Africa and the Middle East as part of the World War. They did this in hopes that their service would earn them independence once the war ended. 
During the Battle of Madagascar, the British and Free French forces aimed to secure Madagascar and eliminate any potential threat in the region. They hoped to also ensure the safety of sea routes in the Indian Ocean. The Allies were mainly composed of British and Free French forces in the operation known as Operation Ironclad. The Allies launched an amphibious assault on Madagascar using both air, sea, and land forces. The British and French forces landed at Diego Suarez in the north of the island. After fighting went on, the resistance from the Vichy French forces was eventually ended in September of 1942, and Madagascar was liberated. In 1945, after the war had ended, the government of Madagascar came together to legally partition France for independence. The movement was entirely peaceful, fully legal, and was done with the hope that an independent Madagascar would remain in the Francophone community and keep close ties to France. The French took aggressive offense to this. They saw this as a spit in the face of their quote-unquote long-term help to the nation. They also had a bad taste in their mouth after the independence revolt of Vietnam. So, the French declared war against the independence movement. And this broke the Malagasy. They had given so much to France, and this was very disheartening, and was also very violent. On March 29, 1947, the Nationalist Secret Society and the Ginny Party launched an attack against administrative areas of France, and this began the Malagasy Uprising of 1947. Many of the resistance soldiers were former Malagasy veterans from World War II. From 1947 to 1948, the armed resistance found a lot of success using guerrilla tactics in the dense forests of the East. There was also a lot of victories for the rebels when World War II veterans were able to defeat French soldiers in open battles. At the height of the uprising, one-third of Madagascar belonged to the Malagasy forces. However, the uprising was brutally suppressed. The French soldiers burned villages to the ground, physically abused prisoners, and overall killed thousands of Malagasy in hopes to break their spirit and end the war. The French also employed very nasty and what today would be considered war crimes against the people. Women and children were butchered alongside men, and one case saw Malagasy rebels thrown out of an airplane while still alive to plummet to their deaths. All this was done in total war tactics and as part of scare tactics to try and break the Malagasy. As the resistance began to dwindle, the French were still hungry for revenge, and they enacted what was called a pacification campaign. The campaign killed over 100,000 Malagasy in an effort to eliminate all insurgents in France. And they also followed this up by having the trial of 1948. This trial saw the three most important political leaders of the uprising, Joseph Rosetta, Joseph Ravohangi, and Jacques Rambin-Mananjara, of the Democratic Revolution Party, sentenced to life in prison for the part they played in the uprising. All of this is horrendous. And I, before I move into the next steps, which are the move for independence, we have to acknowledge what I just said. Hundreds of thousands dead in just a few years because they wanted to partition France for independence. Didn't start a war on France, didn't do anything crazy. Started, step one, by going, okay, France, we want independence, how can we make it happen? Let's talk about this. Let's partition, let's do this. You know, you gave us all these systems of democracy and all this, cool, let's do them so that we can get what we want because the time for empires is over. The French reply with declaring war on the independence movement. And yes, the Malagasy tribes strike after the war is declared. How could you not? And fighting goes on, and you could cry me a river about the French soldiers that died. Oh, boo-hoo. But you can do also in your argument what the French have done for every war they've fought in the past 200 years and wave the fucking white flag. This is ridiculous. It is what we would call genocide in every other case. I don't know why we don't use that term here, because 100,000 people, when it's women and children being butchered, you're throwing people out of planes, you're doing mental torture, you're doing physical torture, and you're the power that is hundreds of times more powerful on this nation that you already control. It's abuse, it's an apartheid thing, it's genocide. You can call it whatever the hell you want. It's disgusting, and it's very typical of France. So let's not act like this is new. It's France in the 40s and 50s. 
it's France at this time. They were disgusting to Algeria. They were disgusting to Guinea. It's bastards like Charles de Gaulle in power. And I'm not going to hold back what I think because it's the fucking truth. So this makes me nuts. It's absolutely ridiculous what happens here. And it doesn't get the coverage it deserves. So next time you think about Madagascar and if France has anything to say, remember this shit because they'll always try and pull something like this. As you may imagine, I kind of have a distaste for the way France handles at the end of the empire period. I am an American. They did pull us into Vietnam. So moving on. But... I did need to say that. So we're going to move back into the history now, which follows the infamous trial of 1948, and that is the 1950s move for independence. In the 1950s, a lot of political parties really started to emerge in Madagascar, and their whole point was to advocate for greater independence. The two most important ones were the Democratic Party of Malagasy and the Congress Party for the Independence of Madagascar. The social and economic grievances played a role in the push for independence because the Malagasy people were heartbroken over how many had died, over the abuses from the French, over the fact that they had to fight another war with France, and there was also the economic issues, the lack of stability politically, and all sorts of things that made Madagascar want to be independent. Nationalist sentiments grew, and Philbert C. Ranana emerged as a key figure in the push for self-determination. In the 1950s, because of leaders like C. Ranana, there is this move for independence, and the system is made much more concise and stable, and France and all the other powers are starting to move towards independence. As you get towards 1960, this was officially achieved when independence was declared in 1960, when Madagascar gained it alongside 16 other African nations in what is known as the Year of Africa. Syriana was the first president. He pursued a policy of moderation and sought to maintain close ties with France. He advocated for a mixed economy, combining aspects of both capitalism and socialism. And the amount of connection he had to France was actually pretty controversial because of the very recent move to separate from France. His presidency heavily saw efforts to develop the Malagasy economy, and he implemented agricultural policies to boost the production of export crops such as vanilla and coffee. However, his economic policies faced challenges, and Madagascar struggled with economic difficulties during his tenure. In 1972, Syriana's government declared the Democratic Party the only legal party in Madagascar, which established the nation as a one-party state. This move was met with heavy opposition and protests. Growing discontent with his rule, economic difficulties, and allegations of corruptions across the government led to an increase in the opposition party getting supported. Amid widespread protests and strikes, Syriana resigned from the presidency in 1972. And this led to a period of a lot of instability in Madagascar. Gabriel Romanansola succeeded Srinana. Gabriel's presidency was characterized by a period of military rule. He assumed power with the backing of the military and attempted to stabilize the political situation. The president implemented economic reforms in an attempt to address the economy's economic challenges. These reforms included measures to control inflation and reduce the government spending. The president also sought to reconcile political factions and ease tensions in the aftermath of Sirinana's resignation, which divided the nation because he did have so many supporters for his leadership in independence, but many people challenged him for the way he ran the country thereafter. Ramatosa's presidency was short-lived, and he faced opposition from both the civilian and military factions. Amid growing political instability and huge discontent, he also resigned on February 5, 1975. He was only in office for three years. In this year, Richard Ratasmanjava became president after Ramatosa resigned. With only a few months of his election, Richard was assassinated. Following the death of Richard Ratasmandrava, Didier Ratsaraka took power in the same year. Ratsaraka had a background in the military and rose through the ranks. He played a huge role in the military coup that ousted Philbert Syriana back in 1972. Following the coup, Didier assumed the presidency and implemented socialist-oriented policies. His first presidency lasted until 1993. Ratsaraka pursued economic policies that included nationalism, 
nationalization of industries, and close ties with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Ratsiraka faced challenges. In 1992, a new constitution was adopted, paving the way for multi-party elections. In the 1992 presidential election, Ratsiraka lost to Albert Zafi, marking the end of his first presidency. Zafi did not have a successful presidency, so Ratsiraka returned to power in the 1996 elections and defeated Zafi in a runoff. His second presidency lasted until 2002. Mark Ravalomana took power in 2002. He won the controversial and widely challenged 2001 elections. And to give more detail on him, Ravalomanana entered politics in the 1990s. He served as the mayor of Antananarivo, the capital of Madagascar. His effective governance and reputation for anti-corruption measures gained him a lot of popularity. This pushed him to run for that presidency in the 2001 elections, which he did win against Ratsaraka. After Ravalomanana became president, the political crisis escalated. Both the current president and Ratsaraka claimed victory. This led to a period of uncertainty and tension nationwide. Ultimately, the Ravalomanana government was declared the winner of the election. The new president's policies were focused on economic reform and improving governance. He initiated several ambitious infrastructure projects, including road construction and the development programs to increase transportation and connectivity to the nation. In the 2006 presidential election, Ravalomanana was elected for a second term after securing a huge majority of the vote. Despite his presidency seeing a lot of economic growth and infrastructure development, it was not without challenge. His leadership in the second term faced criticism, including concerns about his concentration of power and allegations of authoritarian tendencies. In early 2009, protests and demonstrations erupted in Madagascar, particularly around the capital. These protests were led by Rajolina and his supporters, who accused the Ravalomanana government of corruption and mismanagement. In 2009, Rajolina declared himself in charge of the transitional government, leading to increased tensions with the Ravalomanana administration. In March of 2009, tensions increased and pressure mounted on the president. He handed power to the military. In March of 2009, pressures on the president had heavily increased, and this is when the military got involved and a coup was enacted. Eventually, the president handed power to a military council led by the commandor, Andriy Rajolina. Since then, the political state of this nation has been very back and forth. The two most important people have been Mark Ravalomanana and Andriy Rajolina. In 2014, Ravalomanana returned to Madagascar after being exiled since the coup of 2009, and this split the country once again between the two of them. In 2018, Madagascar held a presidential election that saw Andriy Rajolina win once again. Then, in the 2023 elections, which are very recent and had a huge effect on the nation, Andrew Rajolina once again beat all three other candidates, including Mark Ravalomanana. Which brings us to the present. The most recent election means anything can happen in Madagascar. The government corruption and a lack of accountability persists. Defamation and other laws restrict press freedom. Authorities in the government deny permits for demonstrations and disperse the few that occur. The government has struggled pretty heavily to handle the different lawlessness and poverty in the nation, especially in the South. But nonetheless, Madagascar is still trying its best. Madagascar has been in a weird political climate since independence. They haven't ever gone that long without a coup, and there's always been mishaps. But compared to other African nations, especially those in East and South Africa, which Madagascar is closest to, this nation is doing relatively well. There haven't been assassinations and civil wars in quite a while. There is only political conflict that keeps the nation heavily divided, and there is a lot of 
accusation of corruption in the elections, but nonetheless, the nation is still working hard. Madagascar is a beautiful nation with dozens of cultures in one place, and with hope, this nation's gonna hopefully transition into a place of peace and stability as time moves on from its tumultuous past, both with the fighting against the French who disgustingly abused them and tried to genocide them, and the 2009 coup, which was much more recent. So all that brings us to the end, where I always like to do a takeaway or mindset, and with Madagascar, that's going to be stand up for yourself and show it. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is absolutely biased and based when I say this, but it's the damn truth. Madagascar was heavily isolationist for a very long time. It was untouched by most of the world. That's why so many cultures developed here and were left alone. That's also why there's so much beautiful biodiversity. And then, of course, the Europeans stick their nasty noses in the situation and start to muck it up. And at first, you know, the British for once actually seemed to be the decent people in the situation and developed the nation while also putting in some cultural influences like Christianity. But then you get the baguette eaters who come down from their nice little country and come to fuck shit up. So... The French are nasty. They do horrible things here. They manipulate. They lie. And I'm not going to act like the British were goody two-shoes. They've done this in dozens of nations. But nonetheless, the French do it here. They lie to the people and then use this as a reason to invade them, which sounds like the most European thing I've ever heard. And they do that, start to abuse the people, go on to have a war with them, abuse them, genocide many of them, torture them more and more and more. It's just a bunch of nastiness, as we heard before. So, once Madagascar gets free, it has since dealt with political instability, ups and downs, all this. But the most consistent thing that has happened since all the way back with King Ranavalona I is resistance. This nation has always stood up for itself. It stood up against the French. It stood up against nasty actors that have come to abuse them. It stood up by guerrilla fighting. It stood up with protests. And then recently, it stood up with coups. This nation heavily represents what it means to be resistant to someone who has nothing but bad intentions for you. And yes, you could say, oh, whoop-de-doo, the French brought all oh, railroads and healthcare. They also brought fucking murder. So that's another thing we need to consider when we talk about this. And it's very similar to Vietnam, where, of course, the French don't like to get their hands dirty. That's why they lose so many damn wars. And then with that, they end up getting nasty. They get spiteful and that's when they end up killing people and torturing and doing all the nasty things that they did because they felt it was justified so this is an old france that is not the french we're talking about today i have nothing against the french people but much like with britain and france and china and russia and all these countries that have a history of violence and as an american citizen i will not sit here and lie to you and act like my racist ass white nation has not done the same thing but in this case the french were disgusting in madagascar so all this happens, the people go through this, and that gets me to my point, which is they resisted. No matter what the situation was, they resisted in their own way. Be it a coup, be it guerrilla fighting, be it wars, be it resisting the influence of the Europeans at all. That is the embodiment of what Madagascar has done. They have resisted, and they have been very adamant about it. They have recorded their history. They've put it out, and now people like me get to shit on the French government as much as I want for the nasty things they did here because you should embody what they did. The Malagasy suffered and resisted hard and stood up as much as they could, and then afterwards they were very proud of themselves and wore it on their sleeve. That is the same thing you should do. There's going to be hundreds of times in your life where you're going to be influenced in one way, and you're going to just run into bad actors, people who want to hurt you. Hopefully to God, you don't run into anything that is physical or truly detrimental in that way, and your safety is kept. But there are absolutely people who are going to try and hurt your pockets, hurt your emotions, get something out of you, abuse you, lie to you, manipulate you, something of the sort. You should be exactly like the Malagasy event and resist as hard as you can. Because if you could see it the same way Rana Valona did all those centuries ago, you can absolutely beat them and absolutely have that wall up against bad actors like the French. So 
I think this story and their history manifests that. They're a very resistant people, very proud of the resistance they have put up against powers that have tried to kick their teeth in. And because of that, they're a nation that is developing, but seemingly working towards a lot of great things. You know, another huge thing with Madagascar is vanilla. You know, they've started to really find their niche these last few decades, especially since, since independence, because the French developed in the early stages. Now Madagascar vanilla is like some of the highest quality in the world. And their next step of resistance is likely going to be nationalizing stuff like that, because of course the French companies, this is the same thing that happens across Africa, the French companies still have a lot of control of the Madagascar vanilla resources and how they're produced. So the people who are picking the vanilla stems and bundling up vanilla sticks and all that don't get paid shit but the french companies make a whole lot so that's gonna be their next step of resistance if i am to pick it and i surely hope they win the battle against them once again so that is gonna be all for me as you can tell i'm pretty passionate about this cause known as shitting on the french government um if it was a major in college i would have double majored in it but with everything i've been reading recently i'm a little bit jaded so take everything i say with a grain of salt but the history i give you is nonetheless as true as i believe it to be and with that, you know, I just want to say take what I say with a grain of salt, but I'm nonetheless proud of us doing this. So with all that being said, I'm going to say goodbye to you guys. Madagascar was very cool to study. It was very unique. Also was a nice breath of fresh air after some of the nations I've had to push through recently. But it's been good. It's been very good. I'm glad to hear this nation is not in the worst place in the world, but it's also very nice to be well-educated about nasty things that have happened to innocent people. The very common, what has Europe and America done to the rest of the world story. So, very glad you guys are here. And with all that, I'm finally going to stop talking and say thank you guys so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and that was Madagascar. You guys have a good one.